here to minister the Word of God. And the songs that we have uh, sung together were ideally suited to the message that God has uh, placed upon my heart today. The title of the message is Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. And our key passage is John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 14. Now for the children who want to uh, make tally marks, uh, every time I say the key phrase this time, it's not a key word, it's a key phrase, but any version of this phrase, he who believes in me, he who believes in me. So go ahead and make a mark every time you hear that phrase or anything like that phrase, and then come up and tell me afterwards how many times you counted in the message today, okay? So let's begin with the reading of God's word together. Would you please stand with me as we read this passage, John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it, it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these, he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word, and we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are here in this passage. 
and may they truly provide an anchor for our souls through the deepest and darkest times of our lives. May we be able to hear your voice as you speak to us. Let not your hearts be troubled. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are living in what, uh, there's an old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. We are living in interesting times. All over the world we have so many conflicts, so many crises, so much is shifting and changing and not always, in fact, not always for the better. And it is a time in which it reminds us of the prophecy that Jesus made that uh, men's hearts would fail them for fear of the things that they see coming upon the earth. And so there are many, many areas, depends on what news outlets you are following, which issues you have uh, become uh, addicted to, following, tracking the progress or digression of those areas. And so it's important as, as Christians that we be reminded of what Jesus taught us and of who he is, what he's done, and why he can say to us, even in the midst of the hardest and darkest and most dangerous times of our lives, he can speak to us and say, let not your hearts be troubled. Now the disciples' hearts were deeply troubled and for very good reason. In the previous chapter, in John chapter 13, we've seen in verse 30, that Judas Iscariot has left the supper, the Last Supper, and gone off to betray Jesus, to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. We've also seen in verse 33 of chapter 13, Jesus has announced that he is going away and that they cannot go with him. We also see in verse 38 of chapter 13, Jesus has just told Peter that he will deny knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crows. (laughs) Can you imagine how these disciples were feeling at this point in time? So it is in that dark and disturbing context that Jesus commands them to do what seems to be impossible. And that is, let not your hearts be troubled. In chapter 14, Jesus is going to give to his disciples and to all of us who believe in him ten rock-solid reasons to not be afraid, nor to be discouraged, even in the face of the most frightening and discouraging of times. Now, it's important to remember that everything that flows from John 14 and on through that chapter is the foundation for what this commandment is that Jesus has given them. Let not your hearts be troubled. And here are ten solid reasons why you can obey that command. Number one, you can believe in Jesus just as you believe in God. 
John 14 and verse 1b, you believe in God, believe also in me. In John 8 and verse 54, in a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, he said, it is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Speaking to the religious leaders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees there, with his disciples standing beside him. Jesus is announcing that the God that they serve is, in fact, Jesus' Father. And because of that relationship, our Lord is going to explain in verses 7 through 11 in chapter 14 how exactly that works. And it's, a, it's an amazing passage. And we'll wait until we get to those, those verses before we unpack this first reason. That is, you believe in God, you can believe in Jesus also just as you would believe in God. And we'll find out why in a moment. Number two reason for not allowing your hearts to be troubled. You have a mansion <laughs> waiting for you in the Father's house. Jesus says in verse 2, my, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now a mansion is a large, extravagant home. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now there's an interesting correlation here concerning this word mansion and something that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, now this is in contrast here, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, if we put these passages together and consider the implications If this body that I now have is referred to as a tent, and Jesus is saying, you don't need to be concerned because in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And that mansion is intended to be the alternative to this tent of my body. Then it could very well be that the mansion is a glorified body. It's a mobile home. (laughs) A really, really nice mobile home. And that when we receive that new glorified body, as Paul says here, it's not that we will be unclothed. There won't be a point at which we are are without this habitation, this, this place. But rather that we'll be enveloped by a larger, more luxurious, much more wonderful habitat. God is preparing a place for us. He's preparing a body for us. 
We are actually members of the body of Christ himself. So there's a kind of a wonderful cosmic thing going on here where God is revealing to us that what you've got right now and compared to what's coming is like a pup tent compared to a mansion. And that's what it's going to be like. Now I like to, for the, especially for the sake of the children, to try to give you an idea of what a glorified body might be like. Okay? Now, how many of you children look up at me here and, and I want you to answer a question. How many, how many senses do you have? Okay, a sense is a way that you're able to perceive what's going on around you. So how many of you have eyes? Raise your hand if you have eyes. Okay, so you're able to see, right? How many of you have ears? Okay, point to your ears. You're able to hear, right? How many of you have a tongue that can taste things? Do you? Huh? Yeah, I do too. How many of you can feel things when you touch You can feel things, right? Well, those are called your senses. Those are five different ways that you're able to have a a sense of what's going on around you. Now, imagine when you get to heaven, instead of having five ways, five senses, you have 5,000 senses. 5,000 different ways to experience reality around you. That's what a glorified body will be like. It'll just be a supercharged version of what you've got now, but compared to what you have now and what you'll have then is the difference between living in a tent and living in a mansion, a big, beautiful house. That's what Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And so, let not your hearts be troubled. You have a mansion waiting for you in heaven to envelop the tent that you are now living in. Number three, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in eternity with him. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, and in what way does Jesus prepare a place for us? Well, where did he go after this conversation? He went to the cross. You see, when we think of Jesus preparing a place for us, it's not just like he he went to heaven and got out his tools and started building. No, in order to prepare a place for us, he had to set the stage for us to be able to go to that place. Because as long as we're under the condemnation of God for our sins, we can't get into that place. And so where does Jesus go to prepare this place? He goes to the cross and he dies for us. And then he's buried. And then he rises from the dead again. Rises from the dead in order to reconcile us to God. And so with that gospel truth established, we now have access. We can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need because Jesus has made a way for us to go. Otherwise, we'd be barred at the door. You can't come in. God is too holy to have any interaction with you. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he prepares for us to go to heaven. Ephesians chapter two and verse six, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase in Christ shows up in many places in God's word. And it's important for us to realize that everything that we 
have and everything we ever will have, we are going to have in Christ. As we involve, as we participate with him, in him, what he's going through, we died in Christ. We rose from the dead in Christ. We go to be with the Heavenly Father in Christ. We're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. You see how that works? He goes through all of this and he carries us with him in that because now we are in some wonderful way in Christ. So let not your hearts be troubled. The place that Jesus has prepared for us in heaven is actually in him. We died in Christ. We rose from the dead in Christ. And now we are already seated together in Christ in the heavenly places. And it's already a done deal. God already sees it as having already happened. And so Paul is able to speak of it as being present tense. Number four, Jesus is going to come back for us. I have a traveling mat here. Jesus is going to come back for us. In John 14 and verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we saw in our last series, in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will then forever be with the Lord. So let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is coming back for us. Whatever is going on in this world, even though it causes men's hearts to fail, Jesus is coming back for us. And we will be with the Lord forever in John 14 and verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus is coming back to take us to heaven. And that's true in the sense that Jesus will be there in heaven. But the passages that we read concerning his return is that he's coming back to receive us to himself. To be with him forever. Soon after Bonnie and I were married... We had a, uh, an occasion where we could do something separate from one another. I don't remember what it was now. But it had to do with going away, her going away, or me going away. And, and, and we, decide, we had a conversation. I remember the conversation. And, and I said at that point, I didn't marry you in order to be separated from you. I want to do these things together as much as possible. That whatever, if you have something to do, I'll do it with you. If I've got something to do, you, you come with me. But we, we didn't get married in order to be apart. We got married 
in order to be together. And I think that is what's in view here with Jesus. He is receiving us to himself, and so we will be forever with the Lord. And remember, we are members of the bride of Christ. And so Jesus is saying, I didn't marry you in order to be apart from you. I married you so that we could be together. So Jesus is coming back. So let not your hearts be troubled. We will be with Jesus forever. Forever and ever and ever. Number six. Jesus himself is the way to and the truth about the life that we have in him. In John 14 and verse 4, And where I go you know, and the way you know. And then Thomas, you know, I love Thomas's, uh, his personality comes out in these interactions with Jesus. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And so how can we know the way to get wherever you're going? And Jesus' response has a kind of an edge to it. Don't you think? It's like it's not just this, oh, Thomas. There was a little bit of an annoyance there. It's Jesus said to him, I am the way. And, and he follows this up with other statements that make you sense these guys should have known some things that they were still seemingly clueless about. And he's saying, have you been with me so long and you still don't know me? Now what that tells us is that we've got a responsibility to pay attention. We have an obligation to listen to what Jesus says and think about it. And there's gonna, we're going to come up to a passage right now where we're going to have to do some deep and in some ways difficult thinking. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the context here has to do with Jesus and his relationship to the Father. He says, where I go, you know. Where are you going? I'm going to be with the Father. And the way you know. How are you going to get there? Because I am the way to the Father. We're dealing with this issue of how do we get to the Father? How do we get to know the Father? And Jesus is revealing this in, in, in ways that I'm certain that he's talked to them about this before because he's, he's saying, don't you already get this? So let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is the only way to the Father and the only true truth about the true life that we will have and what it will be like with the Father. Everything here has to do with Jesus opening the door for us to come back into fellowship, to be reconciled to the Father through the Son, which is Jesus. Number seven, knowing Jesus is all we need to know. That's the sense of what comes next. In John 14 and verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. (laughs) But Philip is still not quite clear on this. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Go ahead, show us. 
And Jesus' response is, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now this passage is a major revelation concerning the Trinity. The relationship between the Father and the Son, they are both God. And the Holy Spirit is also God. And these three are one God. And this is mind-boggling, right? And yet Jesus is saying this is the way it is. Now, when we think of God being in Christ and Christ being in the Father, we're dealing with a reality that goes beyond what we experience in physical reality. You know, like, like two solid objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. You know, it, it, physics don't work that way. You've got one rock, you've got another rock, you can bang them together all you want, but you can't get them both to be in the same place at the same time. And that's why it's so hard for us to grasp the truth that God the Father is in the Son, and God the Son is in the Father, and that these two are one, and yet they are the separate Son and Father relationship. Now, we can let our hearts not be troubled because we can believe in Jesus just as we believe in God because both are in one another. God is not envious of our devotion to Jesus. Jesus is not envious of our devotion to God the Father. The Father and the Son are not envious of our love for the Holy Spirit. These three are, are one and the same God. And so with that mind-boggling truth in place, we are able to face whatever trials and crises may come in this world and fulfill the commandment of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. God is bigger than all these things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's got this covered. We can rest in him, knowing that he has the situation in hand. And I don't mean by that you can rest with assurance that the Calvary is going to come over the hill and everything's going to be all right. I'm not saying that. He's not saying that. Though you go through the, shallow, shallow, the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil. Because God is with you. And he takes you through death. Not just, it's not a, a near miss. It's like, oh, I almost died. No, you die. 
And it's okay. Because God is greater than death. Do you see the difference? We live in a world in which people go to be with the Lord by the grave. Jesus is coming back. Some of us will not see death. We will rise to meet him in the air. We will be with him. But the dead in Christ rise first. And they're there ahead of us. And so you see, when we talk about God being greater than these crises, we don't mean that he waves his hand and all the crises go away. We mean that we go through the fire. We go through the flood. We come out the other side, not because we are not affected by it, but because God is greater than the power of the fire or the power of the flood. We are secure in Christ, even in losing our lives, even though we may suffer greatly in this life, even though the persecutors may have the upper hand for a season. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in Jesus. And Jesus is greater, more powerful, more wonderful, and the only things that can possibly happen in your life is that something else will work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, which is to be conformed to the image of his son. All of these things are nothing but chisels and sandpaper to conform us to the very image of the son of God. Number eight. Jesus' miraculous works are sufficient to prove to everyone who Jesus really is. In John 14, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know that you've come from God because no one could do the works that you do unless, the, unless God was with him. And Jesus then says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But the point here is that the works that Jesus did are important. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, to walk on water, to multiply loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 at a time. Why did he do all of that? It was in order to provide ample evidence of who he is. So that when he went to the cross, there would be ample and sufficient evidence to proclaim a gospel that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. There is sufficient evidence for that in the way that Jesus had complete control over all of reality. What we call a miracle is when God accomplishes his, his purposes by working around the physical laws rather than working through them. And so, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is uniquely the son of God. He is begotten of the father by the Virgin Mary with no human father involved. Jesus is the son of God. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Now, it's so easy for us to see that word believes and think of it as just a kind of a moment of mental assent. It's not. It's the kind of believing that changes everything in your life. Now, this is not a work. It's not something you do to earn. But it's just, it's a reality that if you really believe something, then you will act upon it. You will organize your life around it. It will become the center of everything. Now, I know this is a, a, a trite analogy, but if, but if I announce to you that I've placed a million dollars in individual bank accounts for each one of you, and here are the, uh, the numbers and the, the access numbers, the passwords and everything you need to go and get that money. Now, if you believe it, you will go and get it, right? Unless you just say, hey, I'm not into money. I don't want any money. I hope that's not the case because you can do a lot of good with that. But my point is that if you believe it, you'll act upon it. If you really believe that there's something there for you and all you have to do is type in these numbers and it's in your account and it's yours to spend, you will do something about it. Well, here's the, here's the good news. Jesus Christ has died for you. He has risen for the de- from the dead in your place. He is now in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God. And he is saying to you, do not let your hearts be troubled because I have provided for all the things you will ever need. All you need to do is trust me. If you really believe him, you will trust him. And if you really trust him, you will act like you trust him. And your hearts will be at peace. And you can go to be with your Savior without fear. You see how that works? He who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life begins now. It doesn't start when you get to heaven. Everlasting life begins now. And we live in that everlasting life. So let not your hearts be troubled. There is more than enough evidence to support us in putting our complete faith in Jesus. If, if, if just his word alone is not enough, then look at what he did. That's the evidence that clenches it. He is who he said he is. And he's accomplished what he said he would. Number nine. We will do even greater works than Jesus has done because we believe in Jesus. Now I know that framing it this way seems a little audacious. But let's take a look at the passage itself. Most assuredly, I say to you, And when you hear this phrase, most assuredly, in the King James Version, it's usually verily, verily, I say unto you. 
In this translation, most assuredly I say to you, you know, if we were going to put that in modern English, it might sound like, hey, listen, I'm telling you the truth. And then you say it. He's wanting to get their attention. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, there's several ways to understand the greater works. Many have uh, taken it with the understanding that we do as his church, which is now scattered around the world, cumulatively greater works, because these are less limited by time and geographical location than Jesus' works were when he was here on the earth. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was not in Samaria. When he was in Samaria, he was not uh, in uh, Copernicus. What's the name of that city? Capernaum. (laughs) Copernicus was another guy. Okay. My bad, my bad. Okay. Jesus was not in more than one place at the same time during his life. He traveled from one place to another. He had to go to be with Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he's on his way. He doesn't just appear there. He has to walk. Because Jesus, he says, when I go to be with the Father... I'm going to give the Holy Spirit to you. And now we're going to be able to have a much broader geographical presence in which every individual Christian, when the circumstances line up, are going to be able to do the same kinds of works, miracles that Jesus did in response to their prayers as God answers their prayers, which comes up in a moment. So what we're dealing with is the greater works, you could say, is cumulative much greater because there's more of us to be doing it all over the place. But there's also room for the idea that we will do greater works simply because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we are able to do the things that Jesus did and even in more extraordinary circumstances. We don't see the Apostle Paul walking on the water. Okay? But we do see him getting a promise from God that everybody on board is going to be okay. That's pretty cool. So we are in some way able to do greater works than Jesus because he has gone to be with the Father. And we know that that is done by sending the Holy Spirit to us. So let, a, let not your hearts be troubled. You will be part of a of doing even greater works than Jesus did during his time on earth. You should expect that. Okay? You should expect to have opportunities to pray and for God to work in powerful, mighty, miraculous ways. Begin believing this, okay, if you haven't already. And look for opportunities to do what comes next. And that's number 10. Jesus will answer our prayers when we pray in his name and according to his will. 
I've qualified this because it's in the scriptures. It's not all in the same place. But when you bring those passages together, this is basically what God is promising. That he is going to answer our prayers when we pray in his name and according to his will. And so John 14 and verse 13, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. But then he qualifies it with the next phrase, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice, the prayers that Jesus answers are in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so again, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now different scholars have come to different opinions about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. You know, we often attach that to the end of our prayers. I know I do. At the end of saying grace at the table, I say, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But is, is that all there is to it? Is it, is, it like, is it like showing your ID card to get into the building? You know, in Jesus' name, here I am. Is there more to it than that? I think there's more to it than that. I think when we are in Christ and we're praying to the Father... And we're coming to the Father in Jesus' name. We're coming as a representative of Jesus to the Father. We're saying, Jesus sent me. (laughs) Okay, I'm here because he said, if I ask anything in his name, he'll do it. And so I'm here, Jesus sent me. And I'm asking you, God, to do this because as best I can figure, this 